Greetings and salutations from Times Square, crossroads of the world. This is the Muni Lowdown, produced by DebtWire Municipals, where we talk about this week's most interesting stories in the municipal bond market. And I am your host, Young Lim, desk editor at DebtWire Municipals. Good morning, everybody. Today is Wednesday, June 30th, 2021. And welcome to the Muni Lowdown, the podcast produced by DebtWire Municipals. And today we are continuing our series of guest speakers in Muniland. And today we have one of the most highly respected analysts out there by the name of Dan Ashenbach. Dan, welcome to our show. Thank you. Glad to have you. And let me give a brief bio of Dan for those uh, who are not familiar with him. Uh, Dan right now uh, has created a firm back in 2019 called AGVP Advisory. The firm has, you provide risk assessment consulting services for public finance and electric utilities in Florida, Texas, California, and you're serving as the FA to Peninsula Clean Energy, and as well as risk and credit advisor to San Antonio CPS Energy, the third largest public power electric and gas utility in the US. And some of the services you provide include ESG valuations and enterprise risk management. And Dan was elected to the 2020 Board of Governors for the National Federation of Muni Analysts, the NFMA. And Dan is also a member of the Muni Analyst Group of New York, better known as Magni. But previously before then, which is how I met Dan, he was at Moody's Investor Service. He was Senior Vice President and led the firm's public power electric utility ratings team. And you've chaired many committees and you've had a long and select uh, history. Uh, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. And I know you've also served as mayor of the city of Cranford, New Jersey. Yes. <laughs> Very interesting. And just a side note, this is, could be, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I was talking to my daughter and I live in New Jersey. I live in Bergen County. So you're down in Cranford. And my daughter was telling me that <laughs> some of her friends said, there's only two parts of Jersey, North Jersey and South Jersey. There's no such thing as Central Jersey. I don't know if that's a myth or if that's some, some weird thing I've never heard of, but who knows? But I'm sure you would yeah. definitely <laughs> disagree yeah, with that. Yeah, I'm from North Jersey originally, and Cranford is sort of South Jersey to me. <laughs> so there is no Central Jersey. <laughs> but, uh, you know, people do refer to it as Central, even though I officially I think it's considered North. I have no clue. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, we won't, go, we won't go off tangent. But let's focus on your expertise in utilities. And I want to backtrack a little bit to let's start with uh texas and specific specifically the uh, aircot the electric reliability council of texas and they had a brutal winter power was lo- was lost lives were lost unfortunately and now right now they have another pressing weather situation the extreme heat which is also happening here in the northeast as well as the northwest so do you tell us about the corporation and then basically how they were able to, how are they right now and how can they move forward in terms of all this um, weather-related stuff? Thank you for having me today. ERCOT is an organization that is a nonprofit corporation that manages the uh, balancing the power supply in the state and, and operating the deregulated uh, energy market. So I think uh, ERCOT should be able to manage the current heat wave, uh, mainly because Texas utilities uh, they're they're set up to handle summer peak demands. That's the weather in Texas, uh, where you have uh, there there are summer peaking utilities. Most generation, for example, the facilities have they're maintained at other times of the year, so they're ready for the summer. And ERCOT's forecasting is uh, pretty good when it comes to you know uh, most of the year 
<laughs> most time, I guess. And it's, you know, I think that they've put a recent order in to have people shut down their electricity uh, somewhat. It has been an acceptable practice. Uh, people have been used to that. But, you know, ERCOT was never tested for climate change and extreme weather mm -hmm. uh, impacts, uh, uncertainty about uh, weather impacts. ERCOT deregulated market kind of operates on a scarcity pricing, which has delivered average energy prices that are lower than other areas of the, the U.S. And in forecasting, most pessimistic forecasters, those who have focused on climate change, cannot model winter storms in Texas because there hasn't been any. There's one maybe 10 or so years ago, but it was uh, minor compared to what, what happened uh, in February of this year. So I think uh, Texas has woken up now to extreme, uncertain extreme weather uh, that could uh, impact power markets, the supply of power. So as I pointed out, they just never were climate tested to these extremes. There are new rules being put in place that, uh, for example, the regulatory boards asking for information on any power uh, facility that's out for more than three day, a three day period. There's winterization plans are coming into place. The future you asked about, you know, how they're managing uh, going forward. And uh, the one uh, thing I'd say here is that uh, ERCOT has to regain the trust of the utilities in the state. Um, one way I think that probably can happen is by them accepting the blame for what happened, right. uh, the economic damage, uh, which they have not done. They're using uh, court tactics to try to thwart getting information. And, you know, that's that's has left a bad uh, taste on a lot of utilities. So in, so along those lines, like you said, the, um, you know, accepting blame and being a pessimist, th there's been related to that. You've got some bankruptcies. Uh, and and some rating downgrades related to that. So, like you said, that'll be one, the major first step, taking blame. But what else can Aircut do going forward? Is there any other steps? And as a bondholder, I'm thinking, wait a minute, you know, what what do I look for in this in these situations? I, I think you, as a bondholder, um, focused on Texas uh, municipals is to keep an eye on the changes that are being implemented. For example, the uh, San Antonio uh, CPS had a committee, a preparedness committee that evaluated a number of steps the utility needed to take, and uh, they are they have now a plan to adopt those items. The legislature didn't go far enough, probably, in mitigating future storms. Again, uh, most times this market has worked in the way it's intended. It's just when you have these extreme situations, there was no cap placed on the price. Uh, and an analogy, analogy is when you go filling up your car mm -hmm. at a gas station during that period, you know, it would be $6,000 versus $50. Wow. Prices, energy prices went up to $9,000 where they typically were 30 or $40 uh, um, a, a megawatt hour. So the market failed and more and more focus is being placed on that those periods if they were to come again again the last winter storm you know was many years ago they've, they've modeled the, the droughts uh, hail storms and utilities are typically cap capable of managing those sorts of events but with extreme patterns it's you know it, it really is something. so i i think uh, probably one of the the credit risk areas is how utilities are going to be passing through to customers uh, any of the costs that were they were left with. Um, there is some securitization provisions in the legislation that was passed, and some utilities, CPS again, you know they had healthy reserves. They do have a, a much of that cost 
put into their debt structure. But, you know, I think right now it's uh, watching that litigation of where that ends up as far as whether there is um, some compensation for some of this market failure that occurred. You know, and Eric, getting back to uh, champing a fix that can ensure power markets work when the supply conditions are such that uh, where they were in, in, in the winter. Right. You were talking about those incredible changes, increasing the price. I think I read about this one person who had to basically withdraw all his his in like uh, in uh, retirement fund just to pay off his electric bill. It just jumped yep. so much. It was incredible. Let's move uh, south and let's talk about the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico and Luma Energy has taken over the Puerto Rico Electric Power Authority's transmission and distribution system. And so far, it has not been a smooth transition, to say the least, with there been power failures. And the contract itself is under scrutiny by a legislator, saying that it's considered might be even illegal. So what are your thoughts on the situation down there? Well, I did cover PREPA for a number of years during a period where they were considered one of the foundations in the local economy. While they did have more debt than probably, you know, the the metrics of their debt levels were higher, um, they did have a record of improvement in their efficiencies of their generation units and the like. So my initial comment is simply no utility could have handled that storm, that Maria, Mm-hmm. And no matter what utility it would have been. So the response, the political response that's taken place uh, had to be such uh, bringing in a private operator, I guess, because and there was no way of developing PREPA then organically to fix the municipal utility. You know, there could have been a route to get back to reforming PREPA. I'm not sure if that's a potential still. There's a lot of concern about the fact that the Luma has hired a lot of the, the institutional knowledge is being lost because a lot of the former prep employees have not been rehired. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, that's a, a big concern. Uh, and they do have, Luma has an enormous task ahead of it, given that the hurricane season has arrived and um, they have no ability to rate, raise rates and managing that stormy song. So I think probably at this point, you know, as uh, Luma being responsible now for electric uh, transmission distribution, their relationships with the municipal uh, and government, um, municipal and uh, Commonwealth government has to uh, be very, very close uh, to, to be able to ensure that uh, electricity is delivered uh, safely and um, that there is preparedness there for whatever next storm comes. So, um, you know, I don't I don't have more current comment on that other than I, I do think that there was a way to fixing PREPA and that was missed at that point. Right. Well, we shall see. I mean, it's uh, I think there are some places even now uh, it's they haven't rec- haven't recovered fully from, like you said, the effects of Hurricane Maria uh, yep. several years ago. So that's still amazing. All right. So let's move on. Let's go back to the continental U.S. and on to California and it's been a year since PG&E emerged from bankruptcy, and we know Mother Nature can be extremely fickle. It, right now, the Pacific Northwest, which traditionally gets not a hot summer. In fact, people I know, Seattle, people don't buy air conditioners. It doesn't get that hot out there. Along those lines, since it's it's so fickle, I mean, are there any remedies out there that, I mean, you were talking about ERCOT and, you know, things that they could do, but other major utilities like PG&E, what, what else can they do to prevent or can they prevent such uh, future uh, catastrophes? I think I'd uh, answer this in two parts. First, that, you know, obviously scientists believe that carbon from fossil fuels in the atmosphere causes the climate change and are responsible for these extreme patterns. 
So reduction in CO2 is a national policy. Um, you know, uh, previous to the Biden administration, it, it was the emergence of natural gas as a, you know, as an alternative to coal, which shifted utility use of coal downward, which obviously reduced CO2. And, you know, the, the administration now is pushing even new, newer guidelines to get to CO2 levels, lower, lower CO2 levels sooner. This will have um, challenges, and it is having challenges as an example you know, the new nuclear construction, uh, nuclear is fossil free, uh, um, carbon CO2 neutral is having trouble. The, you know, the Georgia plant is still not operating yet. Intermittency and low capacity factors for wind and solar are low, and that creates a, a stability problem. And, you know, the overriding concern, the U.S. is based Electric systems based on one major principle, and that's reliability. And if you don't have a utility system that is reliable, uh, it affects the local economy dramatically. So those challenges, you know, reducing carbon further by shifting to other fuels that may not provide a, a reliable system, there's a lot of work that needs to be done on that. And what complicates this further is uh, the whole U.S. issue of pushing for electrification of buildings and autos. This is on one hand a positive development, but if you're still utilizing fossil fuels to power your electric grid, you haven't solved as much maybe as what you expected. So um, theoretically, CO2 reduction could address the extremes of climate change. So the second answer, it's the issue of preparedness. You know, in California, they allowed a lot of building in, in the mountains, mountain range in uh, New Jersey, Florida, <laughs> you know, coastal uh, building. I know federal state actions have been to try to um, urge uh, new building codes um, to uh, put in place uh, engineering. Um, you know, Hoboken has a new uh, wall that is supposed to protect part of the city. So I think in the Biden um, infrastructure bill, there are a lot of projects that are climate related in that respect being prepared. Um, uh, on the one hand, you know, one policy is reducing CO2 and, and lowering, um, you know, the potential extreme weather patterns. And on the other hand, um, preparing uh, with uh, federal and state dollars to try to uh, mitigate. Uh, those issues. And I know in California, they've made a lot of strides in this area. And uh, it, I think the issue now is, you know, who's next, right? Right, right. <laughs> so the snowstorm in Florida. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So let's then, I think you were talking about nuclear. So let's, uh, I got a question regarding um, the Newgate, the Newgate scandal um, with Sandy Cooper. And, and in general, there's a whole movement for renewable energy. But tell us the future for a utility like that. Sandy Cooper was a minor, a minority partner in that development project. At this point, there's not been any uh, of, their, of those officials that, that have been uh, indicted or anything like that. But um, you know, it, it is so. They're still part of it, and they participated in a a, uh, a project. But when you think about you know what they were trying to get to. And similar with Georgia is, um, you know, it's the Southern uh, response to climate change, you know, nuclear power, you know, being not, uh, zero carbon, having maybe a 60 year life, you know, that was thought to be the, be the best approach. And as uh, construction costs in, in, in South Carolina, for various reasons, went out of control. So um, 
you know, Sandy Cooper does have the burden of the debt that has to be managed. Mm -hmm. um, they had the political risk of not being in existence anymore, but I think they may have turned that corner. Uh, one of the major um, uh, efforts was to fire the entire Sandy Cooper board, which right. uh, the legislature did. It's a brand new board, uh, new president who was head of the Judiciary Committee. And uh, they're now seem to be more focused. They, their general manager or the CEO, who has a lot of expertise in uh, utility management, um, Mark Bonsell, who was with Salt River, he was given an extension uh, on his uh, contract to focus on some of their remaining items. Sandy Cooper as an entity has been always focused on reliability. Uh, for example, you know, they have a, they build their, their generation level to be, uh, to have a reserve margin of 15%, building, you know, their capacity is 15% greater than uh, demand at all times. And that uh, helps to protect them from any of these types of weather or um, market issues. And so going forward, that's going to be their challenge going forward is what to build uh, to meet the CO2 issue, as well as to uh, make sure that they maintain that reliability. They have taken a pretty big step in building in acquiring, I guess, 2,500 acres of land for solar farms. Um, also, they, I believe they have now four state sites that have, that equal about 425 megawatts. So that's what they're going to do. They're going to ensure that whatever gets built is done in a way that, you know, protects their, that they do have a lot of industry that, you know, there needs to be a constant flow. For the CEO, I guess the major goals that were announced is to uh, refinance its debt further to reduce uh, that carrying cost. The location of new power plants to build capacity, again, to keep that reserve margin. Um, and then additionally to, uh, look at ways to, to protect against natural gas cost increases. That risk, you know, natural gas has been a very, um, uh, stable fuel price for the last couple of years, but it is starting to, to trend upwards and it has had a history in the past of volatility. So. You know, utilities, while they are unregulated and have that ability to set rates, that is something that many are starting to look at to be watchful of the, the price increase. Interesting. I'm going to sort of shift away from specific credits. I want to ask, if you don't mind, two last questions in terms of broad overview in terms of the market utilities. So one question is, I think you were sort of alluding to earlier, ESG, environmental, social, and governance. So give us your thoughts on that in terms of the whole utility landscape. I know that the uh, SEC, the MSRB are planning uh, more guidance in terms of for the market. What are your thoughts in terms of how it plays out in terms of utilities? Okay. As you know, uh, ESG is environmental, social, and governance. It's an assessment of these types, these factors that pretty much started in Europe uh, looking at from the private sector, corporate uh, policies, governance policies, and uh, largely climate issue policies. And it's moved to the U.S. as a, a focus for utilities. Probably Edison Electric Institute was had the first sort of um, step in this direction of having utilities voluntarily provide climate and environmental uh, factors. They have a form that filled out and it's um, utilized by the boards of these utilities. But it's more, it's more broadened from that. There are a number of ESG providers, Sustainalytics, for example, uh, Morningstar that are data driven. There's a number of, and one of the criticisms that it's 
that has brought the SEC into that is that a lot of uh, corporate utilities have been uh, making statements and uh, that may not be necessarily true. <laughs> and others, uh, and then uh, a lot of these providers of ESG standards, um, there, there, there's a whole array of different uh, methodologies out there to come up with what ESG means and utilizing different data. The SEC is looking to find a way to do both, ensure there's materiality of what's being asked, to ensure that there's some standardization, and to ensure that there's no misinformation provided. They call it greenwashing for a while, you know, claiming you're green, but you're really not uh, type of thing. So in the public sector, probably Smith's research and gradings has been one of the only firms that have done private placement assessments for a number of years um, using a lot of scientific data that they have. And rating agencies have incorporated ESG evaluations, not as a rating, but as a factor in how it impacts ESG factor how it impacts credit ratings. I believe S&P has the only standalone uh, ESG sort of product where they'll look at your ESG scoring. Um, mm -hmm. And there are a number of other like independent organizations that focus on the E part of this. Uh, one is called the Carbon Disclosure Project, CDP, which is a voluntary submittal of your carbon a whole series of questions that are asked about carbon and that they have not really, they've done cities in the U.S., but not done utilities. And I believe um, in this year in their, their application process, they've now broadened it to municipal utilities. So that may be something that will be a voluntary effort. There's more and more, you know, seeing more and more investors asking for this type of information. Right. I, I, I read uh, a assessment that about 9% of preliminary official statements contain some climate change or ESG disclosure information. And that is more than likely, I would think that would be one where area where that will increase. Um, from the municipal's perspective, it is probably something you're going to see a lot more of requirements, MSRB, for example. Mm -hmm. I know uh, a number of exa examples, New York State Power Authority, for example, has a um, sustainability report that delves into ESG and how they're going to manage that. San Antonio CPS has a, a global power uh, uh, purchase, uh, a procurement uh, RFP that includes any firm that responds has to have a sustainability, or, I'm sorry, sustainalytics uh, rating. So I think you're going to be finding a lot more of this uh, work its way into the municipal market. And it's something that, you know, not only governing boards, but um, other stakeholders are, are asking for that. All right, last question. So finally, for bondholders, any red flags or concerns that they should be aware of going forward? I have a few, I guess I could point out um, something I've mentioned previously. The Prairie State uh, is a coal-fired power plant, 1,600 megawatt coal-fired power plant in Illinois. The Illinois legislature has legislation that potentially could force it to shut down. Uh, that plant was uh, built with um, about $5 billion of municipal bonds financed by over 300 cities through joint action agencies. Uh, so that's, that's, that's one that... Um, you know, is under the title of climate change transition, I guess, or, or CO2 transition. I think the point out before who the next victim of climate change was. <laughs> that could be a, uh, an issue, which I can't predict. I don't have that capability, but Pacific Northwest, uh, I don't, again, it's, it's probably that issue. Yeah, they have, they have uh, really hot weather. They've had drought conditions mm -hmm. that have started to mirror past 
uh, periods, how long that goes on and what that effect will have on hydroelectricity production. The last time that I recall uh, the cycle was the, the many of the utilities did not have much cash reserves on hand and there was a competitive uh, market uh, situation um, and a number of them had some financial deterioration because of this. You know, when you have drought, you don't have a hydro and that's the main uh, fuel and it's lower cost. And they did, there was a lot of lessons learned from that in building cash reserves. And a lot of the municipal utilities built sizable fund balances, but whether they've been maintained and are, are sufficient, you know, that's something to watch for, I guess. The natural gas dominance, uh, you know, Florida, for example, is 75% uh, natural gas, probably more than that. And um, some of the municipals, Tallahassee is in the 90% range. Hmm. And that works well when you're at a two dollar, three dollar price. But you know, once those prices, if they if they are they are trending up, I you know I've read some articles about the you know there could be a five dollar price. If that keeps moving, all the all those hedged hedging issues, wrong way hedging, and all those issues come back uh, to surface again. For the municipals, they have the ability to pass through costs, but you know customers only can stand some some point of. Um, that and then I, I I do think that there's going to be some maybe financial deterioration or some utilities maybe in those areas that are weak economic areas that will have to reabsorb loss of revenues due to COVID no connection policies um, once that if, if they continue their you know that revenue loss would would have some impact on financial metrics but I don't see many um, uh, major de- uh, credit deterioration there. So those are some red flag areas. Interesting. Well, Dan, we're about out of time, but Dan, thank you so much for your time today. We appreciate your insight and we hopefully we can get you back on the show again. Very good. Thank you very much. That is our show for today. Many thanks to Dan Ashenbach uh, from JEG VP Advisory uh, and Dan used to work at Moody's Investor Service. And also thanks to your audience out there who tune in week after week for the latest on Distressed Mini Debt on the Mean Lowdown, the podcast produced by DebtWire Municipals. Take care, everybody. We'll see you again real soon. Thanks for listening to The Mean Lowdown with me, your host, Young Lim. If you want to know more, subscribe to DebtWire.com and follow us on social media. Please leave comments, rate, like, and share. Join us next week when we talk about the latest in the municipal bond market.